Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile Essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. From KCBS Radio, I'm Matt Pittman, and this is Bay Current for Thursday, March 10th. Retired Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman was the Director for European Affairs for the National Security Council, serving in Ukraine and Moscow. He rose to national prominence in 2019 when he became the first White House official to testify before Congress that then-President Donald Trump asked Ukraine's president to investigate Joe Biden and his family's business affairs in Ukraine in exchange for military aid to defend itself against Russian aggression, which ultimately led to Trump's first impeachment. Vindman is now retired, but has been outspoken about the ongoing Russian invasion of Ukraine, sounding dire warnings about the depths and links to which Vladimir Putin will go and the need for decisive action by the U.S. and NATO to resolve the crisis. My colleague Mike DeWald spoke at length with Lieutenant Colonel Vindman. What's your read on, on how things are going right now? Uh, what's your sense of things at this at this time? Yeah. So this is still early days, uh, not, not quite two weeks into this war. Um, the first several days, first three, four days were a disaster. But a lot of that's based off of the assumptions by the political leadership that drove the military planning. Those assumptions were that the Ukrainians would roll over, that entering these cities and replacing the political regime would be a, a cakewalk, and they were fundamentally flawed. So uh, when the, the, the these major military formations ran into these cities or the outskirts of these cities, they hit a wall. And... Uh, a wall that they weren't prepared to kind of uh, meet with with this kind of ferocious resistance. And then they started calling for resupply, ammunition, food, fuel. And those uh, they had extended their their um, lines of communication, these logistics tails so long uh, and left them vulnerable. And those got plastered also. So that really kind of stalled out the initial phase uh, and scrapped the first part of the plan. Um, and the, the Russians haven't really made much progress with regards to the, the attacks from the north and from the east. They've secured some uh, some roads. They've moved forward on some roads, but they actually haven't you know, reduced the cities. Uh, these major population centers, Suma, closest city to the Russian border, um, Kharkiv, the second largest city in Ukraine, a city of 1.5 million, um, Chernihiv, which is north and, and east of Ukraine, of uh, the capital of Ukraine, Kiev, and Kiev itself. They've made some gains in the south, uh, but it's been a tough fight there, too. The, the biggest thing that they secured is kind of a medium-sized city 
in a population of, you know, uh, with a population of a couple hundred thousand in a, a country with a population of uh, 45 million. They haven't been able to um, really do much more. And now they're really the place that they're the biggest fighting is occurring is this land bridge between Russia and the uh, Crimean Peninsula. They're fi fighting for a pretty significant city called Mariupol. Uh, and, you know, it's just a tough slog and, and trying to consolidate and reorganize for the next assault on these cities. The first part of that would be encircling. And the second part would be attacking into the cities. And frankly, from a military perspective, they don't have uh, the forces to actually seize these cities. They're, they're too big. And we've seen over recent days um, a little bit of movement on on both sides. Uh, there there may be some some room to negotiate. Do you have any? Does that make you optimistic at all that that we might see a resolution in this, or um, is it sort of going in circles? Uh, for the time being, it's it's largely going in circles. The fact that the Russians uh, are prepared to negotiate instead of uh, demanding capitulation uh, is telling. But there are still uh, there are still maximalist uh, demands from the Ukrainians, things that are not palatable uh, to the Ukrainian leadership, uh, and that would infringe on Ukrainian sovereignty and independence. So, I would say that um, what's likely to occur, unfortunately, is a uh, bloody escalation. We think it's kind of looking bad now. It's not. Uh, the Russians have have attacked. The outskirts of cities, they've done some aerial bombardments on uh, on uh, cities like Kharkiv and stuff like that. But it's going to, going to get worse. They're going to, uh, uh, as they get frustrated, they're going to resort to the, these kinds of uh, tactics and just rain artillery and um, ballistic missiles on, on Ukrainian cities with a lot more casualties. So uh, this is likely to play out over the course of weeks and months, not days. And that's why getting Ukraine help is so urgent, because as this extends, uh, there's going to be an incremental escalation on the part of the Russians. We already see that happening with the, their nasty tactics, attacking civilian populations. It's going to get worse. They're going to get frustrated with the fact that there are supplies coming in from uh, from Europe, uh, from uh, partners. They're going to get frustrated with these economic sanction sanctions, and they're going to lash out. So the longer this goes, the more dangerous it gets. That's why I've been so adamant about doing everything we can now, making some you know, courageous but risk-informed decisions, things that are mindful of the way this, this has played out in the past with proxy wars, because there's a long history of proxy warfare between the US and the Soviet Union during the Cold War. Fundamental rule was we don't fight each other directly. So you don't have NATO uh, you know, killing, at least not overtly, killing Russian soldiers. You know, There might be covert ops, but there's not declared military warfare. And the Russians did, uh, understood, understand those rules, too. They never really, frankly, left the Cold War. So there, that's why we, need, we could do more. We could help provision Ukraine with planes. We could help provision Ukraine with unmanned combat aerial vehicles that could go after these ballistic missiles that are uh, wrecking cities and inflicting casualties. We could provide them uh, with the resources to knock out planes that are dropping bombs. And that really actually levels the, the playing field because uh, that plus what we've already provided with regards to missiles, these anti-tank missiles and stingers, actually, um, you know, that that could get us to a sharper conclusion, meaning that the Russian forces are spent and have to kind of negotiate in good faith. On uh, uh, that's what that's why it's it sometimes might seem counterintuitive, frankly, that you want to kind of uh, uh, escalate support to Ukraine, but the whole intent is to to uh, avoid a protracted war. Because if we learned anything from uh, you know the early 20th century is that in protracted wars, 
the U.S. is not safe thousands of miles away. We get we get drawn in anyway. And the largest war between the war between uh, the largest country in the world and the largest country in Europe already has implicit major risks and the potential for escalation. Just intuitively looking at a map and seeing the scale of uh, you know these land masses at war with each other is 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 pretty frightening. And we need to avoid being drawn into protracted conflict. Now, do you see uh, Vladimir Putin's aims? Uh, do you think they've changed from where they began? Uh, it is, is his goal in Ukraine different? Uh, his goal hasn't really changed that much yet. Um, part of the uh, we, we have to recognize that Putin is a rational actor, but he's acting on um, skewed information. He's got an inner circle, a very insular inner circle that has been giving him rosy pictures of what's going on. He also has uh, decades of experience as a as a uh, as the you know dictator of, of Russia, incre- increasingly di- dictatorial. And uh, what he's learned from his experiences, the more he pushes, the more he uh, he he uh, exposes kind of of softness and vulnerabilities. And the more he could get his way, he's been engaged in multiple wars: che- Chechen, uh, the Chechen War, uh, Georgia, uh, the long protracted war starting in 2014 uh, with Ukraine, Syria, hybrid warfare attacking U.S. elections, assassinations, successful assassinations in in Berlin, in UK using uh, uh, you know nuclear weapons grade uh, materials and, and chemical weapons. He's pushed, and we've basically kind of looked the other way on the hopes that our, our, we could arrest a, a declining relationship or, or on the hopes that we, there's more than we, uh, that we could accomplish when there isn't. We should have been applying our resources to places that we have willing partners like Ukraine, because we're like-minded, we could uh, accomplish something together instead of beating our he- heads against the wall with Russia. But he's learned from this that he could push more, and uh, that's that's he's so he's ri- driven by rational uh, objectives. He's just uh, doesn't really he's not getting the kinds of data points that would warn him off these kinds of things. He he's getting uh, data points that suggest the West was fractured and uh, distracted instead of resolved to resist. And uh, but his fundamental thing, the fundamental kind of assumptions for him have not shifted. That nuclear war uh, can never be won, must never be fought. Mutually assured destruction is ironclad doctrine, and that fighting the uh, fighting NATO, unless it's absolutely ex- uh, an existential crisis, meaning that NATO attacks is is about the worst thing you could do under any circumstances, let alone circumstances where he's already bogged down in Ukraine. So we are we we have kind of lost our nerve because we forgot how to play this game, uh, being in the post Cold War era. And he hasn't. And right now we're we're seeing uh, we're seeing ghosts. We're seeing mirages of threats that really don't exist. And that's the well, probably one of the most important things I've tried to communicate, you know, to, to pundits, to, to this administration, actually, in fact, because this administration also, frankly, has a bunch of um, relatively young, you know, political uh, folks, uh, political elites that haven't really tangled with the Russians, haven't studied the Russians and have, have misconceived notions of where the risks really lie. And that's it's been just a constant source of frustration because to me, I see the risks long-term, not short-term with us doing more. And I, uh, it's, it's just really frustrating getting the, this administration to recognize that. Uh, it's, you know, I don't know what to do anymore. And then uh, just to close out, um, what do you see as, in, in terms of negotiations, I guess the best, most realistic outcome for Ukraine? Yeah. So the most the, uh, there's a couple of different things. The first thing I'll start with is 
this is going to end by negotiations. It's going to end. It's going to end by negotiations. Russia cannot achieve its military uh, or political objectives through force. So the the deal is um, we're in a situation where we could help nudge negotiations forward by helping the Ukrainians stand their ground and uh, forcing Vladimir Putin to off his uh, belief that he could achieve his uh, his military aims. And what that might actually ultimately look like is that Putin has inflicts a massive amount of damage on Ukraine. And as a dictator, he could say, I've accomplished my objectives. They're demilitarized. They're denazified. Time to go home. Good job, Russian army. He can do that. And that's frankly the way it might end up. There's possibly possibility he actually achieves this land bridge and he snags a bit more territory. But Ukraine as a nation uh, uh, remains intact. That's the way this ends. We just need to do everything we can to help. Thank you again to Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vinman and to my KCBS radio colleague, Mike DeWalt. And thank you for listening. New episodes of Bay Current are out every day, and we'd love to be part of your daily routine. You can subscribe to us on the Odyssey app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and just about anywhere you listen. We're also on YouTube on the KCBS radio YouTube page. That's it for today's Bay Current. I'm Matt Pittman. We'll chat with you again tomorrow. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. 